Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mississippi Book Festival. My name is Dustin Parsons, uh, and I am a teacher of writing and literature at the University of Mississippi. Uh, Our panel today is a conversation with Cynthia Barnett, Patrick Dean, and Nathaniel Rich. Uh, The Mississippi Book Festival is a nonprofit founded by the literacy advocates, uh, founded by literacy advocates, and launched in August of 2015 on the state capitol grounds. It continues to draw thousands to its annual literary lawn party and book lover celebration. Unfortunately, the lawn party was forced to take place virtually this year, uh, but we have a great lineup of authors for our panel today, Humans and Nature. I wanted to go around and introduce everyone on the panel first, and then we'll uh, launch into uh, a very short reading and, uh, and some questions. Uh, Our first panelist is Cynthia Barnett. She's the author of The Sound of the Sea, Seashells, and the Fate of the Oceans. Uh, She's an award-winning environmental journalist who has reported on water and climate change around the world. Her books, uh, including The Sound of the Sea, include Rain, A Natural and Cultural History, which was long listed for the National Book Award and was a finalist for the 2016 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award. Blue Revolution, Unmaking America's Water Crisis, which was named by the Boston Globe as one of the top 10 science books of 2011. And her first book, Mirage, Florida and the Vanishing Water of the Eastern U.S., uh, which won the gold medal for best nonfiction in Florida Book Awards, was named the St. Petersburg Times as one of the top 10 books that every Floridian should read. Uh, Ms. Barnett has written for <clears throat> excuse me, National Geographic Magazine, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, Discover Magazine, Salon, Politico, Orion, Encia, and many other publications. She teaches environmental journalism at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications in Gainesville. Patrick Dean is our second panelist. Uh, Since 2012, Patrick Dean has been a freelance writer, social media content creator, and website designer. He is also the executive director of the Mountain Goat Trail Alliance, a nonprofit dedicated to creating a walking and cycling trail on former railroad beds. He's also a content ambassador for TerritoryRun.com, or excuse me, Territory Run Company. Um, he lives in Montego, Tennessee, and has written speeches for congressional candidates, taught inner city high school English, and earned a master's degree in theology. Uh, his book is entitled The Window to Heaven, The Daring First Ascent of Denali. Uh, Nathaniel Rich, uh, joining us from Birmingham, Birmingham, Alabama, is the author of Losing Earth, A Recent History, which is a finalist for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Award and a winner of awards from the Society for Environmental Journalists and the American Institute of Physics. He's also the author of the novels King Zeno, Odds Against Tomorrow, and The Mayor's Tongue. His short fiction has been published in in McSweeney's, Esquire, Vice, the Virginia Quarterly Review, and American Scholar, and he was awarded the 2017 Emily Clark Balk Prize for Fiction. He's a two-time finalist for the National Magazine Award for Fiction. Uh, His book uh, is entitled Second Nature, Scenes from a World Remade, 
Uh, he's a writer at large for the New York Times Magazine and a regular contributor to The Atlantic, Harper's, and the New York Review of Books. Uh, his reported pieces have appeared in various anthologies, including The Best American Non-Required Reading and The Best American Science and Nature Writing. And he would normally be coming to us from New Orleans, but today, uh, because of the hurricane, he's coming to us from Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for uh, for uh, appearing and, and uh, helping the Mississippi Book Festival continue on in uh, virtual space. Um, what I want to do first is to give everybody a very short opportunity to read from their work, uh, if they would, uh, just a, a small five-minute snippet, and then we'll jump into some questions. So I think I'll just go in alphabetical order as I introduced you. Uh, Cynthia Barnett, would you start us off, please? Sure, Dustin. And first, I'd like to thank you, Dustin, and the Mississippi Book Festival for hosting us and for all you do for for literacy and for authors and their books and for, you know, keeping going with this, with this panel and this event, even on, online, we all appreciate it. It's even more important during COVID to, you know, get the word out about our books. So we all really appreciate that. Normally, Dustin, when someone asks me to read, I have been starting with the opening of the book. I tried very hard to write an opening that would really draw in the reader immediately by evoking uh, the collection of seashells and childhood. Um, but this time I decided to read the very end of the introduction because it it better articulates what the rest of the book is about, and especially this idea of, of nature and the construction of nature and the imagination, which I think perhaps seashells are, you know, a really, a really good example of that. So this is the very end of my introduction. This book was born in a record warm and rainy winter, records now shattered on Sanibel Island in southwest Florida where every street is named for the seashells that wash ashore on the southern beaches. The marine biologist Jose Leal had invited me to give a book talk at Sanibel's Bailey Matthews National Shell Museum, which is devoted entirely to shells and their makers. Leal is an expert in the biodiversity of mollusks and in their constantly changing scientific nomenclature. Fluent in four languages, he reads another two. He's worked in the world's great shell collections, including the Smithsonian, the largest, and edits the Nautilus, one of the oldest scientific journals of mollusks. Yet he found what he considers his most vital role in a place that hosts shell craft lessons where visitors glue googly eyes onto nature's masterworks. For Lial and a number of marine scientists I've met in the years since, helping people understand what's happening to the world and its life has become even more important than their research. I once asked Lial for his opinion on shellcraft. He would say only that some of his best friends glue googly eyes on shells. Ten years before I met Lial, the Shell Museum had surveyed its visitors, many of them tourists and their children, visiting Florida to find out how much they already knew about seashells. The survey revealed that 90% of visitors had no idea that a shell is made by a living animal. Most people thought they were stones. 
As much as the modern crisis of truth is a conceit of politics, it's also a consequence of that severing from nature. When Pokemon characters are more familiar to children than the snails that helped inspire them, when drips of of plastic are far more common than the seashells on many beaches of the world, natural history and life's struggle to survive are hard to know. The chapters that follow take the form of a coiled shell circling out from an apex in Sanibel, spiritual home of every mad sheller. The apex, the pointy top of the spire, is where the mollusk begins its life and the work of shell building. I, too, was born in this part of the world, in the county that's also home to Sanibel Island. As a child, I loved collecting seashells and visiting the cheesy, self-proclaimed largest shell shop in the world on the mainland. Only as an adult did I learn about the great cities of shell built by indigenous coastal people living here more than a thousand years ago. The Calusa left the most extensive shell works known in the United States, cultural and natural archives almost entirely flattened by 20th century road graders. From Florida, the narrative winds out to tell stories of some of humanity's most iconic seashells, the animals that make them, the people intertwined with them, and the changing seas we share. Modern shell madness rose in Europe with the first mega corporations, the the Dutch and British East India companies, whose ships carried home tropical seashells and other high-demand goods from the East and lit the flame of global consumerism that has become an inferno. The era also saw the rise of the first worldwide currency, a small white shell with an outsized imprint on history and culture. Harvested en masse in the Maldives under a succession of queens, shining money cowries were moved along trade routes as ship ballast and became the dominant currency of the transatlantic slave trade. Following the cowries brought me and my teenage son to the slave castles of West Africa on the 400th anniversary of the first voyage carrying enslaved people from those shores to America's seashells revealing as much of human nature as nature. This book is about seeing what has gone unseen, the life inside the shell, the Maldivian queens and others left out of history books, the connections between the human condition and that of the sea. Just as we've loved seashells for the gorgeous exterior rather than the animals that build them, we've loved the oceans as the beautiful backdrop of life rather than the very source. The narrative also winds through time. It begins with the earliest shelled life known, then turns to fossil shells like the spiraling ammonites that left signposts to evolution, extinction, and geologic change. In the days before the scientific revolution, many people just thought they were stones. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cynthia. That was really great. Uh, I'm always, I was always taken like periodically with the term shell madness as the, as it came up in the book. I just, I, every time I laugh because my kids have shell madness whenever we go to uh, the beaches of Florida, it just makes me so happy to see it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. That was really great. Patrick Dean uh, is reading next. Take it away. 
Thanks, Dustin. I want to echo what Cynthia said. As someone who lived in Jackson, Mississippi for almost a decade, all told, and even worked at Lemuria Bookstore uh, long ago in my 20s, I was so looking forward to going to my first Mississippi Book Festival and being with these folks in person. But uh, this is a great way to, to make up for it. And uh, hopefully we'll get to do it next year. So very grateful to be invited on this panel and uh, glad to have a chance to talk about my book today and their books today, which I, I really enjoyed both. So um, I'm going to start as Cynthia usually starts at the very beginning of my prologue, uh, sort of give an overview of, of, I think, of what the book's about and, and uh, where everything is set and what's going on. Hudson Stuck could barely breathe. A tough and experienced outdoorsman who had spent the last decade dog sledding and tramping across Alaska in the Yukon, Stuck nevertheless gasped in the high, thin air 20,000 feet above sea level. He and his three companions stood just below the summit ridge of Denali, the highest peak in North America, on a clear, windy, four-degree below zero day. Stuck wore six pairs of socks inside his leather moccasins with iron ice creepers or crampons attached to the bottom. Immense lynx fur-lined mitts covered inner scotch wool gloves, and his torso was layered beneath a fur-hooded Alaskan parka. Yet, Stuck wrote, until high noon, feet were like lumps of iron. Behind them stretched what Stuck called the dim blue lowlands of the future Denali National Park, where threads of stream and patches of lake will carry ice along their banks. A few smaller peaks squatted off to the northeast. In every other direction, the immensity of the mountain they perched on blocked their views of Mount Foraker and the other peaks in the Alaska Range. Above them, just a few hundred more yards of climbing and the prize to be the first humans to set foot atop Denali would be theirs. It was June 7th, 1913. They were Stuck, Episcopal Archdeacon of Alaska and the Yukon, the oldest of the group at nearly 50 years old, short and wiry, his neatly trimmed beard, the only one among the four. Walter Harper, the youngest at age 20, half Alaskan native, fit and confident. Harry Carstens, 34, calmly competent from his years in the Alaskan backcountry. And Robert Tatum, 21, the greenest member of the team. They had launched this expedition eight weeks earlier, enduring bitter cold, severe altitude, and the loss of key supplies to a campfire. The team had arrived at their last camp just below 18,000 feet the night before. Awakening to a brilliant, bitterly cold morning, the party had reached the summit slope after eight grueling hours with Harper in the lead. Surrounded by nothing but snow and ice, their toes and fingers numb, they approached the final ridge to the summit. Though all the men were unable to fully take in air, it was curious to see every man's mouth open for breathing, Stuck would later write. It was hardest for him. Everything kept turning black for Stuck as he choked and gasped, almost unable to get any breath at all. The missionary's load had already been reduced. The other members had divided up the contents of his pack, leaving him only the bulky mercurial barometer he had stubbornly carried up the mountain to make scientific observations on the summit. Now he struggled even under, under the barometer's weight. Finally, Harper, the youngest and strongest member of the expedition on this day, doubled back to where Stuck knelt in the snow took the barometer, and hoisted it onto his back. Harper's presence on the mountain was important to Stuck for more than just his youthful vigor and physical strength. Since coming to Alaska in 1904 to become Archdeacon, Stuck had become a fervent champion of the rights of the Native people. In the Alaska of this era, a raucous and deeply unsettled meeting point between traditional Native ways 
and the modern white culture, a center of feverish trade and feverish vice, in Stuck's words, Stuck spent most of his time ministering to the Athabascan peoples in his region. He bore no illusions that their lives would be improved by the onslaught of Western ways. Harper, who was half Athabascan and half Irish, represented Stuck's aspiration for the natives of the far north. Walter's father, Arthur Harper, a distant figure in his life, was a pioneer in the history of white Alaska, the first to imagine gold in the Yukon, where he met Walter's mother. Walter was raised by his mother in an Athabascan village and at 16 met Stuck at the mission school in Tanana. They forged a lifelong connection. On Denali, in Stuck's words, Harper ran Karstens close in strength, pluck, and endurance. Robert Tatum was a Tennessean who had come to Alaska to study for holy orders in the Episcopal Church. He proved himself the previous winter by joining a heroic relief effort, helping deliver by dog sled desperately needed supplies to two women missionaries down the dangerous ice of the frozen Tanana River. His experience with surveying tools and other scientific instruments and his willingness to serve as the cook for the expedition, along with what Stuck termed his consistent courtesy and considerateness, made Tatum a very pleasant comrade. Harry Karstens had been in Alaska for almost two decades and learned its often harsh lessons firsthand. He had earned the right to be considered a sourdough, a term derived from prospectors' habit of carrying a starter of sourdough bread and a pouch around their neck, later expanded to describe those who'd been in the far north long enough to prove themselves. He had made his reputation in the backcountry since the Klondike Gold Rush of 1897, making his reputation on the mail routes, prospector streams, and hunting expeditions of early 1900s Alaska. Stuck explicitly relied on Karstens for his outdoor skills and experience, as well as his toughness. Karstens, on the other hand, had less sympathy than Harper for Stuck's difficulties. To Karstens, a hardened miner and backwoodsman, Stuck's insistence on spending time with the books and writing materials he brought to Denali, not to mention the burden that carrying such extra weight imposed on everyone, amounted to little more than lying in the tent. Karsten's antagonism towards Stuck, which increased with each step up the mountain, was fated to flare into far worse. For his part, Stuck had always admired Karsten's, describing him as strong, competent, and resourceful, the true leader of the expedition in the face of difficulty and danger. He would never understand his former partner's antagonism in the wake of the expedition's success and fame. But for now, Stuck and the others had to put all animosities aside and focus on putting one foot in front of the other, slowly and deliberately gasping and grasping for the summit. Thanks, y'all. Thank you very much. That was really great. Uh, I, in the same way that I, ever, I heard Shell Madness over and over in Cynthia's book, I was hearing every time you referred to somebody as a sourdough as, as the book went on, I giggled to myself a little bit because, you know, I mean, went through like that whole bread thing during uh, the, the, uh, during COVID, right? The sourdough was just, it, it's the perfect description in some ways of, of people who have been there and proven themselves. That's uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, Nathaniel, if you don't mind taking it away. Sure. Um, and thank you, uh, Dustin, for, for, for doing this and hosting this and, and Patrick and, and Cynthia, it's, it's really an honor to, to be on with you. And, and uh, I appreciate the Mississippi Book Festival persisting. Um, I wonder if, if the yeah, if the pandemic didn't get it, if the storm might have. So it's probably probably we're fated to end up here in any case. Um, I'm going. So Second Nature, my book is, um, you know, I, I, there are stories about people grappling with this uh, 
massive transformation of, of the natural world or what we persist in calling the natural world, even though there's nothing uh, definably natural about it. And, um, you know, I, I think Cynthia put it well. Um, now, I, now I will paraphrase her more articulate phrasing, but, but that essentially that, you know, any, any inquiry into uh, the idea of nature um, very quickly um, ends up into an inquiry into to human nature. Uh, you know, nature is a sort of creation of, of human civilization. And, and so what we end up talking about, I think, in these conversations are about is people and, and the choices we make and, uh, and the responsibilities we take and those we don't take. And so I'm, I'm going to read the beginning of one of the stories uh, that's about this incredibly ambitious uh, effort um, to bring back extinct species, uh, known as de-extinction. And I wrote it about um, this, this fascinating guy, young guy, uh, younger than me, Ben Novak, who is at the uh, center of, of this, this major scientific effort. Um, and his story uh, begins this, uh, the chapter, and, and I think it will give you some sense of, of both the book uh, and, and the kind of themes that I'm, I'm writing about. Uh, the, the chapter is called, the story is called Pigeon Apocalypse. The first time Ben Novak saw a passenger pigeon, he fell to his knees and remained there, speechless, for 20 minutes. He was 16 years old. At 13, Novak had vowed to devote his life to resurrecting extinct animals. At 14, he saw a photograph of a passenger pigeon in an Audubon Society book and fell in love. There was a single passenger pigeon in his home state of North Dakota, but it was locked in the research collection of the Historical Society in Bismarck. He had no idea that the Science Museum of Minnesota, which he was visiting with a summer program for high school students, had pigeons in its collection. So he was stunned to encounter two stuffed specimens, a male and a female, mounted in lifelike poses. He felt overcome by awe, sadness, and euphoria at the sight of the bird's beauty, their bright auburn breasts, their slate-gray backs, and the dusting of iridescence around their napes that, depending on the light and angle, appeared purple, fuchsia, or green. Before his chaperones dragged him out of the room, Novak snapped a photograph with his disposable camera. The flash was too strong, however, and when the film was processed several weeks later, he was haunted to find that the photograph came back blank, just a flash of white light. Since then, Novak has visited 483 passenger pigeons. He's seen them at the Burke Museum in Seattle, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and Harvard's Ornithology Department, which possesses 145 specimens, including eight pigeon corpses preserved in jars of ethanol, 31 eggs, and a partially albino pigeon. There are 1,532 passenger pigeon specimens left on Earth. They've all been dead since the afternoon of September 1st, 1914, when a captive pigeon named Martha expired at the Cincinnati Zoo. She'd outlasted George, the penultimate survivor and her only companion, by four years. As news spread of the species' imminent extinction, Martha became a minor tourist attraction. In her final years, whether depressed or just old, Martha, apart from an occasional tremor, barely moved. Zoo visitors threw fistfuls of sand at her to elicit a reaction. When she died, her body was taken to the Cincinnati Ice Company, frozen in a 300-pound ice cube, and sent by freight train to Washington, D.C. 
At the Smithsonian Institution, she was stuffed and mounted and visited 99 years later by Ben Novak. That's a great start to, a, to a, an essay, too, because there's just something so uh, haunting about that, that bird being transported and, and the, uh, the ethics of it afterwards. Thank you so much, uh, Nathaniel. Um, so I, I thought we would start with a, a kind of a, a, a broad question based on the, um, based on the um, panel name, right? Um, humans and nature. Uh, all of you deal with that very broad idea and topic pretty differently, I think, right? From <clears throat> straight reportage to personal essay to uh, even adventure uh, reported in some ways. Um, how do you see uh, through your own work uh, the, the result of human, humanity's impact on nature? Just go around the Zoom and see. Um, maybe we can start with Nathaniel, since we've already kind of got you here, uh, the, the result of humanity's impact, I think already we're seeing with that snippet that you read uh, right there, uh, that there's, there's, there's kind of an answer in that. Yeah, I, I think we're at a, an extremely critical um, moment in, in civilization where I think collectively um, we're coming to the realization that there's no longer anything natural about about the world, about the natural world, and that you know every square inch of of the land and and cubic you know foot of the atmosphere um, bears humanity's impact, and and for the most part, um, the impact has been catastrophic on on the planet, on the, the health of the planet, of the habitability of the planet, on other species that we share the planet with, um, and for the most part, the the activities uh, that we've taken to to cause this harm have been have been undertaken without really much forethought or, or consideration or even awareness. Um, so it's been this sort of reckless. Um, we've had this reckless, uh, uh, you know, abandonment basically of of, of um, the planet. And and you know where we're at now is um, we're starting to recognize that you know in a, in a broader way in a collective way i mean the the idea that humans could in, could through our activities could affect the um you know the planet and and affect other species uh goes back centuries and and you know you see it particularly taken up by humboldt in the 19th century and and his followers but but it's it's now finally started to seep in i think to to the the greater um public understanding and 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 with that there's a sense that you know uh, first, a sense of alarm, you know, what should be done? You see this, of course, around climate change, but really about all of the other, you know, ecological threats that we're, we've, we've brought upon ourselves. Um, and then I think even more critically, and this is where sort of my, my book gets to ultimately is, um, you know, once we take responsibility, once we understand what's happened and then we take responsibility for what's happened, um, I think the, the inevitable next step is try to figure out, well, what can we do about it and, and are there ways to use our, our technological sophistication to, um, if not reverse the damage, then at least uh, create a, a more, a sort of a healthier uh, planet and a healthier relationship with the planet, to take some responsibility uh, to do, um, to have some positive interventions instead of these, these reckless ones. And of course, that, that path is very risky and, and you know, um, there's a lot of, uh, uh, dangers that lie ahead, and yet I think that's where that's where we we have to get to, and that's that's where we're getting to increasingly is the sense that 
you know, if we are indeed the architects of, of, of the reality on the planet, you know, t- t- now, how can we be good architects? Or I guess the more common metaphor is good gardeners. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's a lot of fascinating stories, I think, to tell about um, both this sort of realization and, and what's going to come, come next. And that's, that's where I've, I found myself most interested in, in, in writing about people who are having those kinds of uh, conversations and thinking through uh, both the threats and, and the, you know, the possible wonders that, that could lie ahead. Right. There's, there's, there's a, 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 I think there's not a, a, a real, there's not a lot of conversation yet about the, the damage sometimes that we do or potentially we could do by trying to help. You know what I mean? There's a lot about the damage we're doing simply by being. Uh, but I, what I was really finding curious, especially in that section of, of your book was that there's also real potential damage in, in what's coming in what, what we're, what we think we're, we're doing when we're doing the right thing uh, in some ways, uh, which is, is, you know, I think a mystery to the general public in general, you know, they throw their plastic in a tub and they're like, okay, we're done. We've done it, you know, and no, <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not quite there. Yeah. And the inter these, these new, new sort of futuristic interventions are already happening just, just sort of out of the gaze of the public view. And so, um, I think there's, you know, a lot of what's what's going on needs to be brought out into the open, so it could be we could have a real cultural debate about it instead of um, the sort of technologues on the on the on the uh, the avant garde of this these, these technologies just sort of making the decisions by themselves. Yeah, definitely, uh, Patrick. Do you want to address that question? The um, the idea of of um, what humanity's impact is. I know your book is. Is, is very different, I think, from uh, from Nathaniel's and, and Cynthia's, but I, I suspect that there is in there uh, a great deal about uh, humanity's impact. Well, I think what's interesting, you know, I've been listening this morning and thinking about it, and that and that the sort of the the marriage of nature and human nature um, is very interesting from a sort of a historical standpoint. Um, you know, the the book, my book about Alaska, is basically you know about the clash or the meeting of the cultures of. Uh, Alaska natives and, you know, the white settlers coming in and all that and the missionaries too. And so, you know, each brought their own view of nature, their own worldview. And those things clashed just as much as the, as the people themselves clashed. Um, and Stuck found himself, Hudson Stuck found himself in the middle of that and, and uh, uh, was definitely someone who thought that Alaska natives had a lot to offer to the West in terms of their experience surviving in that harsh land for thousands of years. Um, and it, I was making the jump this morning and thinking about how someone like Stuck would have loved the fact that we have writers like uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer today who are talking about indigenous wisdom and indigenous history and culture um, and knowledge and how it ha- not only has solutions to offer, but it has something to offer to all of us in terms of what we know and should know and a way to live in the world. Stuck would be delighted not only that there was someone like her um, offering those solutions, but also that there that our society offers people like her the platform to do that kind of thing. So it's you've got those you know, those combinations of of worldviews and how they mix and how the culture of nature to, in each one sort of meets um, and and overlaps. My next book happens to be about eighteenth um, century uh, America, early seventeen hundreds America. And um, another clash there between English, uh, Native American, and enslaved Africans um, with 
what they do with food and how they live and all that sort of thing. And again, you've got three very different views of nature, which are colliding and how, how are they going to talk to each other? How do they talk to each other? So um, that's, to me, that's the interesting part about it. And, and nature is changed as a result of those exchanges. And I think the more we understand that our, our culture and our worldview uh, comes along with us, no matter what we do, um, the better we, able we are to, to make good decisions about how we're going to live in the world and, and be gardeners, as Nathaniel said. Yeah, that, braiding sweetgrass has that, it's that, that core of, of, a, of a history that we haven't heard along with an environmentalism that oftentimes gets pushed to the side, you know, uh, and, and suggested that it, it's, it's outdated or it doesn't, and, and the, the, the success of that book and the success of the message of that book has, has kind of been uh, a testament to how that's, that, that's not true, that we, we still need those, those voices and those ideas kind of coming through at this point. Right? Very good. Thank you very much. Cynthia, how about you? Um, uh, just uh, addressing that idea of humanity's impact on nature uh, in accordance with the subject of your book, but also just in general. Yeah, so I, I don't want to repeat what Nathaniel and Patrick have already said. So I guess I will um, I will project into the future a bit and say what I what I tried to get to by by you know reporting and writing so much on indigenous people, enslaved people in the United States and around the world was that point of as we remake this world as we must, uh, uh, this idea of nature, um, where, do, where does justice fit in and where do people fit in? So Patrick and Nathaniel both deal with that really, really well. And I'm, I'm thinking of Nathaniel's chapter on New Orleans when he writes about how coastal reconstruction leaves out fishing villages in, in many cases, which is also the case here in Florida. It was also the case when I traveled to Ghana to report, you know, to finish the story of the money cowrie. These are injustices that have been, been with us throughout um, modern history and will be there in the future as we, as we, construct if we're not if we're not mindful and careful so that is you know that's sort of the point that I can add um, to, to what's already been well said and, and something that I hope comes through in the sound of the sea even though it is uh, fundamentally about about seashells it's it's also about listening to what their history tells us about going forward. Yeah, exactly. It's through our subjects, we're, 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 you know, identifying what would be small parts of a much bigger puzzle, you know? Um, and I guess the follow-up question to this, and we'll go back the other direction, right? So we can uh, start with Cynthia is um, for all of the, the, the kind of scariness and bad news that we are, you know, continuing to get about the, about the natural world of the so-called natural world and, and the, the climate, uh, all of you seem to write with this sparkle in your eye about the, 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 the charms of, of the world, the charms of the things that are left, and even the charms of the results of things that have been done uh, in some cases. And I, I wonder, like, how, how was that experience for you? Like, how do you bring that into your, your books? Uh, what kinds of uh, surprises and delights uh, kind of captured you as, as you were writing? 
Yeah, so that that was really the key of why I chose to write about seashells this time. Seashells have always really attracted humans since even and even pre-humans many thousands of years ago. Um, they seem to me a wonderful touch point uh, of wonder to bring to bring a broader audience to the stories of, of water and climate that I've written about for so many years. And so for me, for me, the sweet spot is to blend the hard hitting reporting on climate and extinction and whatever it is with the wonder of in my, in this case, animals. So we've always known about the wonder and beauty of seashells. And my effort here was to, help draw readers to the wonder of the animals that build these shells. So animals that, you know, have these curious eyes on the tip of tentacles and, um, you know, glow fabulous colors and do somersaults and, and skip and, and jump and uh, in some cases sit on their eggs. So I think all of those things are really important um, to to keep woven in um, to to keep readers with us. I you know sometimes I think of um, thinking of a re- is the reader with me? I ask that question: Is the reader with me, or have I lost her? And um, I think that wonder is is what keeps me holding the reader's hand. With a subject like shells, there's wonder around every corner too. It was just so interesting. Uh, stories like. Um, and uh, St. Vincent Malay, I, like, I knew about the fire. I had no idea she was shelling when that happened. Like the, little things like that, those discoveries are just such uh, little jewels. And then you just Thank keep you. With you. That's really fantastic. Um, Patrick, how about you? <clears throat> so I, I seem to spend a lot of time sort of mentally anyway, um, in the space where sort of outdoor, outdoor activity, outdoor exploration, outdoor exertion, um, outdoor adventure, um, sort of meets up with um, sort of altruism. Um, you know, if, if you spend a lot of time around trail runners, mountain bikers, paddlers, climbers, they're pretty engaged. They may not be perfectly good environmental citizens, but they're aware and they care about, you know, the planet for, for obvious reasons. And so um, that sort of juxtaposition has always interested me. And uh, so when I got into this book about Hudson Stuck, it occurred to me part of the way through that, you know, um, Today, we have people who often go on expeditions for causes who will, you know, cross Antarctica to bring awareness of climate change or, you know, run across America to bring awareness of some issue. You know, in the early 1900s, it was a different thing. It was all about nationalism and planting the flag and heroic white guys, you know, who might have had an indigenous person behind them, you know, in the narrative then, you know. Um, But in 1913, you have stuck um, this advocate for native Alaskan ways who brings Walter Harper with him on purpose, who is uh, uh, explicitly promoting and trying to bring awareness to the, to the state of Alaska and the, the plight and the, the situation for Alaska natives. And so, you, you know, he's almost the first cause expedition ever. Um, he came down the mountain and wrote his book, Ascent of Denali, beginning and ending the book with a plea for its native name, not McKinley. Um, and so it was great to reach back that far and see someone that you could really admire for the way he combined his love of exploration in the outdoors and his beautiful lyrical writing about Alaska 
uh, by dog sled or by boat um, with this passionate uh, uh, work on behalf of justice for, for others. And so um, that, that made me happy. It made me, you know, enjoy writing the book and, and sort of in my wheelhouse. You know, and also not, not to put you gave you, you were, you gave me permission basically by telling everybody kind of that they survived uh, what, like the, the fact that there's a, 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 a book about mountain climbers in dangerous situations where like, you know, with, there, there is, there is loss, but like a, a large percentage of the people survive <laughs> like they're, and they're doing good things. And like that, I'm sorry, but like, you don't get that very often. It's, it's really that in of itself was also a delight to, to follow their journals and to follow their, their own voices as they, as they ascend. Uh, was was also a jewel of its own kind to hear their their voices come out in in, in your book. Was really no one no one eats claws their arms off or anything. Yeah, it's not the, it's not the Donner Party this time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Nathaniel, go ahead. Um, the, I think I think it's a good question, Dustin. I haven't been asked that about this book that uh, which tends to you know questions tend to focus on just the cataclysms and you know the the panic threats and all that but um i what gave me the most delight uh was really writing about these people i tend to write about they're all obsessives in one way or another um who find great joy um almost or euphoria really in um scenes of natural beauty that that are nevertheless um completely artificial so to give you some examples of like there's sort of an eerie quality to this but that i love where like one example is the um and this begins the book is and and overlaps with with cynthia's subject matter a bit is there's this glass beach in northern california the famous glass beach that is a, a former garbage dump um that over time because it's such a tourist attraction um people come and take these these pieces of rounded glass which is really like old you know beer crushed beer bottles and tupperware from the 50s and so on uh and so then there's an effort by some local folks including this retired sea captain to restore the beach and 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 restore it to its its quote natural beauty and and the the proposal is basically to dump more trash on it and and there's something sort of crazy about it but there's also there's a there's a beautiful you know sort of wondrous quality to it uh as well and i think about this coastal engineer uh, that I wrote about in, in a section about the Louisiana master plan is trying to rebuild the, the depleted coast. Um, and he, he goes into this, in this, I went with him in this, this boat, um, this swamp boat into this uh, swamp on the edge of this beautiful forest that was, has been created in the last couple decades by a diversion of the Mississippi river. And it, it's this beautiful place that looks just like any other Louisiana swamp, but it's completely created um, by human activity. Or I, I think of Ben Novak, that the extinction scientists um, cuddling with this black-footed ferret, an endangered species that was just successfully um, genetically, they, they successfully genetically engineered a clone um, in the last year to help to help bring it back from, from uh, endangered status. And, and thinking of him sort of like hugging this cute little furry thing that's a test tube object. Um, or I guess the last example I'll give you is the um, these guys in California, Silicon Valley company that are trying to make uh, mass-produced cultured meat. So, so 
you know, like the first first version of which is chicken nuggets made in a lab. Uh, the idea is to end, you know, the the massive you know farming um, slaughterhouse industry. Uh, and so they scrape cells off off chickens and then use the cells to turn turn it ultimately through you know centrifuges in a lab to, into chicken meat into chicken meat. Um, and so there's this incredible video of some of these the people who work in the company at a park. Uh, in a back backyard, like a barbecue setting, eating chicken nuggets um, with the chicken that produced the nuggets with a scrape of its cells strutting around next to the picnic table as they eat him, essentially. <laughs> um, and so that kind of sort of slightly creepy and eerie, but there's something beautiful about it. Th- those images, um, are, which are you know, really throughout the book, I guess, I tried to capture as many as possible, that that to me speaks speaks to both sort of where we are and where where we're going. Yeah, I, and I I, lo- I love that idea that you know the 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 chicken is is there and and like there's because that that chapter was actually really interesting about the about the the, the obsessiveness of getting the taste just right. Uh, it's not that it's viable or it's not viable that it's protein or not protein. It's that it has to have a taste that is so indistinguishable that it'll be accepted, right? And then maybe that leads into our last thing, which is what makes, uh, what makes, uh, and, and I don't want to pretend like we're all you know, uh, experts in environmentalism, but I think you all, you three all have done enough research to, to intelligently about this. You know, what is it that makes, that's going to make environmentalism uh, palatable to us? There, there's a great quote, uh, Nathaniel, in your book, um, from one of the people you interviewed, our empathy doesn't extend far forward in time. It, it, it is it is something that we we might care about things now, but uh, we we don't have and you know we, we seem to have a block many of us on on thinking about our future, thinking about people who will inherit what we have, uh, not because we don't care about them, but because we're constantly thinking about the now and thinking about the past. Um, so I, I guess I leave that as maybe our, our jumping away point from our conversation. What makes uh, preservation, environmentalism, whatever you want to call it, uh, what makes it palatable? Or what do you see making it palatable based on what you've seen researching your work? Well, maybe, you know, I think I would start by by looking at history. And I'm not sure if I would call it environmentalism as much as the human ethos changes over time, right? So when you look at environmental history, for example, in the United States, we could think about the hunting of plume birds that changes dramatically in the early 20th century. This is, it is, it is a changing ethos. It's like when enough people change, the culture switches. And when you read the, I've actually read a lot about the sociology of lawn watering you know, writing a lot about water and drought over the years. And it's like everyone, a few neighbors go to sustainable landscaping and they're kind of, you know, hated at first and then everything switches. And anyway, if you look, if you look at mid 20th century, which I think is a really interesting time for the water pollution, right? The amount of raw sewage that's going directly into rivers and bays, uh, the industrial pollution going into rivers, the rivers catching fire, not just the Cuyahoga rivers, a river, but rivers across the Northeast. 
there is this moment that had been happening for the whole 20th century, but there's this moment where it is not okay anymore. And that had to do with with storytelling, like those of us here are trying to do, but it also comes with, you know, people slowly coming along. And then when a majority of the population demands it, elected officials finally listen. So to me, I, I see a lot of this as, as the progression and, and innovation of humanity that, that has always taken place and that we are, you know, we're, we're not there yet on climate change. And that's particularly true in, um, you know, in, in the area where, where I live, I give a lot of talks still to this day where people come, they're interested in hearing a book about seashells, but they still don't believe what they're being told about climate change. So it is, it is a process and it's sort of what, what always has been. And I would, I would describe it as an ethic, an ethical change that, that, that we're on our way to. Yeah. The slow boring of hard boards uh, sounds like it's just about right for that. Um, uh, Nathaniel or Patrick, if you want to, you want to jump in? Can I, cause I've got a thought in my brain. <laughs> Cynthia made me think about the writer, Seth Godin, who talks about marketing and how, it's effective when it's like people like us, you know, people like us do this, you know, and that sort of gets you on board and gets you buying into this idea, whatever it is. I think about seatbelts is another example of Cynthia, what you're talking about, where all of a sudden it became the thing to do to wear seatbelts. And now we don't think about not, you know, getting in a car without seatbelts. So I think that's what Cynthia said is definitely true. And I think the other part of it is that we've still got this and, and Nathaniel really works on this point. We've still got this idea of, of a wild nature out there somewhere that we have separate from our lives here in the towns and everything like that. And as I was, I was listening to him talking about the glass beach in California and how people mistake that for a natural uh, thing, to what extent I'm kind of wondering, this is almost another hour's topic, but to what extent is Yosemite the glass beach? I mean, you know, we, we think of it as something wild and pristine, but really it's almost as not as manipulated as that glass beach in California. So um, I think uh, an awareness of that reality um, among everybody that, you know, nature ain't nature really um, anymore. And, and we have to do something with it, as Nathaniel says so well in his book. I think that's those are the two things that are going to hopefully lead us to make some changes. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put both of both of you. And, and yeah, I would say I, I think your point about Yosemite, I, I, I concur. I mean, it's. Um, there's no protected area that doesn't require just massive human intervention and activity and um, policing um, and, and, and farming effectively. Um, you know, what species you allow in, what species you try to get out. Um, and, I, and I think that that's, Cynthia had a really beautiful, uh, really put that very beautifully about this change of, of an ethic, which is, a, which is a, an idea that really also goes back, you know, I think of all the Leopold um, land ethic, and, and it really goes back to the beginning of conservation thought. And I think, you know, I agree with everything she said, and, and I would just add that in some ways, you know, the, the greatest threat to environmentalism is environmentalism with like, you know, lowercase e and capitalized, capitalized e, um, in that the more that it becomes, you know, this... Uh, a sort of political category or a, a, a social category uh, that's 
separates it from from the rest of the culture. You know, it, it, once it becomes a political issue, then you have this extreme. You know, at least in this country, this extreme partisanship then sort of fill, fills fills in the the space, the empty spaces there. And and I think the more that um, it's understood that these issues are not. Um, just another, you know, campaign uh, platform, but our, our touch every aspect of our life. That, that the entire fabric of our reality has uh, shifted in such a way that 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 you know, climate and, and even these more broad ecological shifts that, that are now underway um, touch every aspect of our of our politics, of our um, economies, of. Of, and of our of our personal you know lives and and our and our future our dreams of the future the more that's understood uh, that we're not talking about just one issue but really all issues that are wrapped up in into this I think the better uh, frankly the the politics will go um, and and I think that's that has been happening uh, as Cynthia said there have been shifts particularly in the last few years um, but I do think. You know, I'm not. I, I would never say that sort of writers have much power to to change the the, po the politics. But I do feel like that we still have a responsibility to uh, tell stories ab about these issues and tell stories that aren't just stories about you know climate change specifically or about activists, but stories about the ways in which our our lives and and the lives of, of just you know people in the world are touched by these issues and including in sort of subtle. Um, subtle manifestations of it, and, and I think those stories are, are in some ways more powerful than the story of the activist or the story of the someone who's victimized by a you know a hurricane or a, a you know a wildfire. Um, this the sort of more uh, detailed stories about the, the the intimate shifts that we're going through because of the changing world around us. I think are are the most dramatic and in some ways the most um, powerful. Right. Isn't that, that's the old adage of not naming the lobster, right? Because uh, you, you, the, uh, the personal, when it becomes personal, uh, it becomes effective. It becomes, uh, it becomes human. Right? Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, for having such a great conversation. I feel like we could have gone on and on uh, about this, um, but uh, but it, but this was. It felt like a very a very good conversation, not just about singular subjects that you wrote about so beautifully and effectively, but also uh, broadening out to like how and why we do it in the first place. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you to uh, the Mississippi Book Festival as well for curating all of this and keeping it all together. I do hope to see all three of you soon at a, at a book festival in, in real time. So thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you, you Justin. Justin. And thanks, everyone. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.